Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this episode Weaponizing the Web Queer People in the Age of Grinder and Cyber Harassment. Today, we are going to be talking about issues related to online privacy and security, including revenge porn, and how the law can address the issue of non-consensual sharing of images over online dating apps. We're also going to chat a little bit about LGBTQ youth and cyberbullying and whether current laws to protect youth are effective and how they can be improved. With us today is Professor Ari Ezra Waldman. Ari is a professor of law and the director of the Innovation Center for Law and Technology at New York Law School. He is also the founder and director of the Institute for Cyber Safety, which includes the first of its kind law school pro bono clinic representing victims of online harassment. His book, Privacy is Trust, Information Law for an Information Age, argues that privacy law should protect information disclosure in context of trust. Let's dig in. Hey, girl. (laughs) I'm recording now, so I think that's a great way to start. (laughs) Hi. Hi, Ari. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to be talking with you today. And for folks who don't know Ari, either like they don't take his class, or they haven't read his scholarship, or they haven't taken his 30-60-90 class. 30-60-90, a little plug for that as well. (laughs) Yes, get it. Get get your fitness on. You might know Ari from... um, I had to bring this up. You were a meme once. I was a meme. I think that is, I think that's, is and will be the first line of my obituary. Uh, I testified before, I've testified before Congress several times, and one of the times was before the House Judiciary Committee with a pair of women of color called Diamond and Silk. <laughs> right. And they are, if people don't know who Diamond and Silk are, they are rabid Trump supporters who claimed that they were being discriminated against on Facebook because they were conservative. Uh, and what caused me to turn in get, and give an incredulous look to them was that Hakeem, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who's a congressman here from Brooklyn, uh, held, up a, held up a report and asked them, have you ever been paid by the Trump campaign? And they said no. And he said, well, I have this FEC report, the Federal Election Commission, this FEC report, and it says $3,792 from Trump campaign to both of you. How do you explain that? And they, at the same time, said fake news. So when people start calling official government documents fake news, that at a minimum gets an incredulous look. I mean, that's to put it mildly. The face was was classic. (laughs) Thanks. Um, All right, so let's get into the issues. I think let's start with talking about some of the research and writing that you've done in the space of online harassment Mm. and the law in the dating app space, and then we'll talk a little bit about cyberbullying and harassment targeting LGBTQ youth. Sure. So I think there's a good way to start is to highlight a real case that's out there that um, my friend and colleague, Carrie Goldberg, who's a litigator in online privacy, is, is leading here. Uh, it's the case of Matthew Herrick. Uh, Matthew Herrick is a New Yorker, and he uh, had a fa- he had a falling out with his ex. And after that relationship went bad, his ex took pictures of Matthew 
and created a fake Grinder profile, and over the course of the next four to six months, sent over 1,100 men to his home and his office looking for sex. So this is an example of uh, some line in between catfishing and revenge porn, the non-consensual distribution of someone else's intimate images. And as a, and when this happened, Matthew complained to Grinder that this was a fake account, that it was harassing, and the platform did absolutely nothing about it. His, all of his complaints fell on deaf ears. So one of the main things that this case is about is whether Grinder and other platforms have responsibilities to ensure compliance with their rules and ensure safety among their users. And it seems to be that Grindr keeps ending up on the bad end of, I mean, when we talk about the compromises that we might make between being able to share data and privacy and security um, and the law, why is Grindr such a bad actor in mm. this space? Yeah, Grindr is the Uber of online dating apps. A bad They're not a actor. sponsor, so go ahead. <laughs> a bad corporate actor. Um, but there's there's a there's one there are lots of reasons I think that a platform can turn against or not care about its users. Uh, some of those reasons are that the value of data is far more than the value of customer service for some companies. But there's an important legal reason why platforms like Grindr simply don't care about their users, and that is because they do not have to. Uh, there is a provision in federal law called the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. It's actually the only provision of the Communications Decency Act that survived the Supreme Court challenge, that completely immunizes from lawsuit uh, online service providers from the bad stuff other than copyright infringement that their users do on their platforms. So what that means is that it, um, <clears throat> if a user harasses, if someone harasses you on Facebook, Facebook is not responsible. Um, if someone engages in other tortious acts on a platform on a on a platform provided by a company that just pro allows third parties like us to engage with one another, they're not responsible at all. And there's a there's a long history involved in that. And that was passed in 1994. Right. The world is quite different now sure. in 19 in 2019. So. The fact that, and this law has been interpreted so broadly by the federal courts to exclude publisher, distributor liability, all kinds of liability that we normally uh, assign to publishers and distributors. So that means that there is absolutely no legal incentive for these companies to uh, police or care for their safety of their users on their platforms. And my research shows that the only platforms that do, do so out of their own volition because they make a corporate goal of enhancing safety. But that can sometimes be to the detriment of data collection, of profit, or of some other more nefarious corporate goals. So what's the theory that the plaintiff in this grinder case is is coming at Grinder with, and if he's ultimately successful, how does this change the legal landscape yeah. for all of the 
dating, uh, I think you call them geo-social dating geo-social apps? Geo-social dating apps. Geo-social, uh, Grindr, Grindr, Scruff, and a lot of the other apps that the queer community use. And I'm using the word queer uh, as an umbrella term, even though some people don't identify as queer. I'll just use it as a as an umbrella term for now. Um, the geosocial mean, simply means that it's located in real space and it moves with you. Uh, so the plaintiff in this case and their attorneys really want to challenge the breadth of Section 230. Uh, there, It has been, and I agree with the plaintiffs in that it has been misinterpreted, even among, even from the original intent of the drafters of the CDA, which were Newt Gingrich Republicans. Mm-hmm. This was has been uh, has been expanded. The interpretation has been expanded. So I think we do need to curtail the reach of Section 230, and I would propose that we curtail it based on a good faith rule. This is a proposal written by Danielle Citron and, and Ben Wittes in a Law Review article uh, that came out recently called uh, the Internet. Will not break, which is a which is a nod to the kind of hysteria among internet cyber libert- among cyber libertarians who think that just like any kind of regulation on the internet is going to destroy internet commerce and social experience, which it isn't. And what they suggest is that you can have. Uh, immunity from tort lawsuits, because a lot of those are going to be frivolous. But you have to show a good faith attempt to ensure the safety and to block bad actions. And if you don't even try, then you're not entitled to that. And that's common in all areas of law. We have often have good faith requirements or good faith exceptions, whether we're in Civ Pro or in torts, if anyone remembers back to their first year of law school. So, and and what is what would the internet look like afterward? I think the internet would look like a safer place. We would have at least a floor, a minimum requirements of what these platforms have to do because it's, and this is of particular interest to queer people and to other marginalized populations, including women and racial minorities. When it comes to privacy and safety, the people who bear the brunt of the problems when things go south are marginalized populations. When majority populations, white straight men, write privacy laws or write safety laws, they don't always realize that marginalized populations need privacy in different ways and need protection in different ways than they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's simply a lack of experience of knowing how majorities or how people leverage information and leverage exposure in order to push back and harm marginalized populations. So let's talk about, I mean, I was really surprised by a lot of the social science data, like what we know and what we don't know about specifically queer users on dating apps. And the I think we should probably define, I think you dropped it in quickly, but revenge porn for folks, what we're talking about when we're talking about cyber harassment in this context and why it's a queer issue, why it... Um, disproportionately affects queer people and in different ways. Sure. So revenge porn is can be defined as the non-consensual sharing of someone else's intimate or graphic images. And 
Um, there is, and there are now 35, approximately 35 states in the District of Columbia that have some form of revenge porn criminal law. It's usually, in many of those, it's usually defined as a misdemeanor. Few, a few of them also have civil liability attached to them, uh, but it's now a crime in many states. And those laws are not always so great. So it, it not, I like to use the phrase non-consensual pornography because the common phrase revenge porn implies that it's that it needs some type of specific intent to take revenge on an ex, but it doesn't. You can just share the, the sharing of someone's intimate or graphic images is a privacy invasion. It's not just it's not bad just because someone does it uh, for out of revenge. So uh, this is a problem that particularly burdens. Uh, queer people, the largest group that is harmed by revenge porn are women. Um, that's because there are there are simply more women <laughs> than there are queer people who uh, who engage in online dating. But as a as a percentage of the population, as a percentage of their particular population, revenge porn is far more common among uh, queer people and particularly gay and bisexual men. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is there is more more of queer dating happens online than it does in the heterosexual world. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why that's the case, and we can go into that. But there are, but also, there are many apps that that leverage the kind of exposure and the sharing that have become necessary in order to date uh, to leverage what I call disclosure norms to encourage people to share intimate images. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't look down upon that. Uh, the example I, look, I give to my students when I talk about revenge porn and sharing intimate images is if anyone has ever read the letters between John and Abigail Adams during the Continental Congress. Oh, I did not think we were going here. I know, okay, right? Go it's ahead. a good reference. It's a good reference. And I'm sure you read them every I night. I mean, everybody's seen bed. the musical 1776. Which was great. Surely. Which was great. Which was great. But, but actually, in that musical, don't you remember that he sings this beautiful love song to Abigail uh, because he's, he was away, but John Adams was away for so long. And there are these great do letters. Do I remember? Of course I do. <laughs> and there are these great letters you can go yeah. read. And you can, and they're pretty salacious for their time. And you can bet that if Abigail and or John had access to a front-facing iPhone camera, that they would have been taking naked or sexy selfies and sending them to one another. So there's nothing wrong with being sex positive. There's nothing wrong with using the technology that we have in order to engage socially and sexually. The problem happens when people, when opportunistic and mischievous people take advantage of the trust that we put in one another and violate it for their own opportunistic ends. So people will take these images on take these images that they receive on Grinder and put them up on websites and then uh, and, and then extort money out of or and threaten a harm uh, to threaten harm to the people who, who are subject to the who are in these images. And because so much queer dating happens online, because there are such strong norms of disclosure on these apps, uh, partly by design and also because of the nature of queer dating, that we are gay, gay and bisexual men in particular and queer users generally are overwhelmingly and often victimized by revenge porn. And it's not only 
for it's not only for uh, for bad reasons sometimes even people just see a, a sexy photo and just post it on or used to post it on uh, not Flickr on Tumblr Tumblr right oh and they yeah they changed all their rules they changed all their rules right so they used to just post it because they thought oh this is a sexy photo but that still invades the privacy and violates the inherent personhood of that person picture. And I think one of the things with talking about Tumblr and the outrage uh, when they did change some of their rules is we do kind of try to, when we're making policy in this area, assess blame and risky behavior, right? So why is it that you know we shouldn't be so quick to particularly rush to blame queer folks who we might say, well, why were you sharing that image to begin with? Why is that different? And then on the on the flip side, why is it um, that we shouldn't go hard after, you know, the, the, the liability of some of these social platforms where they're sharing? Good questions. So the first one, sure, we need to make good choices, but going any further than that is victim blaming. There is no different between something like what the like what Naomi Rao, who's now up for Judge Kavanaugh's seat on the D.C. Circuit, wrote in uh, early essays that she wrote when she was uh, when she was younger, saying that women deserve blame when they get drunk at parties where men are around. That's victim blaming, and that's wrong. And there's no difference between that and saying that that gay and bisexual men who share nude or shirtless photos with other people on Grindr or Scruff are at fault or responsible for when other people share those images or disseminate those images widely. That's victim blaming. Just because you took a selfie and shared it with someone that you trusted or shared it with someone in an environment that gen- that manifests trust, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Everyone should be able to manifest their positive sexuality and manifest their desires in any way that they want in ways that don't harm other people. Um, and sharing a sexy selfie is totally fine. Again, Abigail Adams and John Adams would have done it if they had the technology. Uh, when people make policy in this area, it's often, policy is often made by people who don't have these kind of experiences. They're made by older, white, straight men who think that, uh, who, who want to go back to a time when gay men had too much privacy thrust upon them. And what I mean by that is, uh, using Anita Allen's framework, she's a pro- philosophy a professor of philosophy and now the provost at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, sometimes people have too much of the bad kind of privacy and too little of the good kind of privacy. Too much of a bad kind of privacy is our laws that force gay men into the closet or laws that force women to uh, dress modestly or laws that don't allow the courts to enter, to look through, pierce the um, mar- pierce the veil of marriage and regulate how much husbands can beat their wives. You know, the, the, that's too much privacy and too little of the good kind of privacy are the one, are the laws that force people to disclose information in order to get benefits like 
women of color, particularly poor women of color and pregnant women who need benefits from the state in order to survive, are forced to give over so much information uh, in order to get benefit from those entitlements. Those bathroom laws that victimized transgender individuals eroded privacy, eroded the privacy of transgender individuals by forcing them to give over, forcing them to carry their papers on whatever they said on their birth certificate. People who write policy on this area want to go back to a time where we're all wearing long, we're, we're all dressing modestly or gay or sexuality is in the closet. Um, what we need to do is we need to modify the immunity provisions from these platforms. And we need to do that for one major reason. It's very difficult to go after the individual person who is who may have taken or sold your or, or distributed your images. Even if you can find out who that is, that mm -hmm. person may have, of course, been anonymous. Even if you can find out who it is, that pro person is probably judgment-proof. That person probably doesn't have the money to put you, make you whole, so what, what help is it going to be to sue them? The the people who have the money are the grinders, and those are the people who are letting it happen. Because as we have evidence of this, people will send uh, notifications and complaints to grinders, uh, to grinders uh, customer service, and they'll never get a response. Right, and that's what made the facts of the grinder case so alarming. And we're not just talking about some negligence here, we're talking about like gross recklessness or I think we're talking about they just don't give a blank right they want <laughs> that should be in the law <laughs> they the law allows them to take not just a cavalier approach to the safety and privacy of their users the law allows them to take no approach to take a careless approach whether you call that gross recklessness or gross negligence whatever they are responsible by their willful blindness to the to what's happening on their platforms do you hear pushback from folks? I just recently, uh, Scruff kind of changed its rules about like what you can put on a profile, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people do talk about that app as being a little bit more socially conscious or maybe better in this policy area. Is there a danger of, you know, the other side of going too far, of pushing apps to kind of take such a careful? careful approach that they're really restricting you know some of the content that can be shared mm. and what does that do to the harm of the community and their ability to you know exist and share share their full sexuality for example. yeah there can be problems as with any type of legislative overreach so i think it's important to dis differentiate the types of platforms that we're talking about here uh, some people complain that changes recent changes to the law what we call FOSTA and SESTA, these House and Senate laws that um, restricted or, or that made platforms liable for participating in sex trafficking uh, uh, resulted in shutting down the uh, the um, dating or the hookup site on Craigslist resulted and changes resulted in and Tumblr shutting uh, uh, um, being more uh, uh, being carefully uh, carefully identifying um, sexual images on their platform and so forth and there's been some pushback from the from certain groups who are concerned that this kind, this these kind of rules are a return to that too much kind of privacy that I too much of the bad kind of privacy right, that I was yeah. talking about, but also that it was pushing sex workers back underground and at the mercy of Johns where they can be more abused. Uh, there are, however, 
places where increased liability from platforms with well-drafted laws, where safety is just far more important and privacy is just far more important. Uh, when you have a, a, a dating app, you know, when you live in a world where, for better or for worse, whatever the law right now is that prostitution is illegal, and the, a platform cannot be seen as advancing, as participating in either sex trafficking or, or participating in prostitution. That's the world that we live in. We can certainly change those policies if we want, but making changes in order to make sure that you're not going to be liable for some, or you're not going to be on the wrong side of the law for something like that may make conservative lowercase c platforms to make take go too far but in most cases the results are going to be increased safety for marginalized populations it's going to be increased safety and less harassment for women and queer persons so i think in this situation we're really trying to figure out how to balance that we need better drafting of legislation and we need also platforms to take a more nuanced approach to the images and the things that they ban or they they, they let on their platform so for example Instagram, now owned by Facebook, this is a different kind of platform than a dating, than a hookup, than a hookup app. So their decisions about what to moderate are going to be different and should be different. Instagram has a real problem with censoring or temporarily taking down queer-oriented art because it may show uh, genitals or it may show... Um, uh, two men in an embrace or something like that. Or it may show it's what some people might consider scandalous type of activities. Um, but, and, and, but they also have a tendency to ban women breastfeeding, right? And they also have a tendency to, to take down too many things. And that's a result less, I think, of a purposeful or an, an, a... A malicious attempt to be homophobic, and more of the fact that content moderation is just really hard. And you have what we're instead of having people who, instead of having a group of people who are really trained in this, we these platforms have so much power that they have to outsource content moderation responsibilities to people who do this part-time and have to look through thousands and thousands and thousands of photos. There are going to be mistakes, and there are going to be, uh, sometimes those mistakes are going to be big. If we continually, if, if we have a movement on the ground to make sure that platforms like Instagram and others know what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right, things will, things could change. But if people just uh, if people just say that we can't have any regulation because that's going to undermine uh, sex positivity, then we're just going to be in a world where people are more at risk than they need to be. This is certainly a complicated dynamic, and another aspect of what makes this complicated from a policy aspect is that you write about all the different areas of law that this implicates, right? Particularly in the revenge porn mm -hmm. setting or non-consensual sharing of uh, sexual images, copyright law, privacy tort, criminal law, third-party con uh, conduct uh, platform liability. How do you start to craft, uh, where do you, what's the best way to come at this issue um, without throwing up your hands and saying it's too hard? Right, and sometimes it is really hard, but that doesn't mean we should give up. So if we're talking, let's be clear about what we're talking about. If we're talking about 
revenge porn, uh, then what is a law? What should a, reven- a criminal revenge porn look like? I do. Ag- I believe that that revenge porn should be a matter for criminal law. Some people will disagree because the criminal and they will. Some of their arguments will be that the criminal law has a long history of targeting queer people, targeting right? queer people, right? And that they, you know, why why go back to that tradition? But the fact that the criminal law has a history of targeting queer people doesn't mean that this particular criminal law has to target queer people in any negative way. Uh, so it's just a matter of drafting. I think the the per, the guy who shared the uh, grinder photos in the case, he's in jail now, isn't he? Um, I don't know, actually. He may be. <laughs> he may be. The civil case, I'm much more familiar with the civil case. Um, the, yeah. the civil case is ongoing, but Does he, he may have be. money? Hopefully they got some money. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> I mean, eleven. You said eleven hundred. Eleven hundred men. Came to yeah. Us. yeah, yeah, but even but the reason why they're going after Grinder is because the other guy can't meet the can't make Matthew Herrick whole. Sure. So uh, there are some people who are going to say the criminal law is not appropriate, but. Um, I think it is because I think we can draft better criminal laws. Just because criminal law has been used in the past to uh, subdue and uh, and harm women doesn't mean that we should get rid of rape law, for example. So I think we need a criminal law. And Marianne Franks, who's a professor at the University of Miami Law School, has drafted a model statute. Uh, and there are, and she has been instrumental in helping all of the 35 states, many of the 35 states, pass revenge porn laws. And some of them are better and some of them are worse. Illinois is among the better, and it's actually being challenged now. Uh, but Illinois is among the better one because it doesn't have an int- a uh, revenge intent requirement. And it doesn't have a, just because you re- disseminate the information to one person doesn't make that any better than disseminating that information, the photo, the photo to a million people on the internet. Uh, that it doesn't have to be sufficiently public because you can send that information to your boss and still lose your livelihood. But if you define it narrowly, and I'll, again, I'll refer to Marianne's work. If you define it narrowly and you make sure that it's accessible to all forms of non-consensual pornography, then you can adequately protect women and queer users. There are other things out there, like how do we solve the problem of Instagram and Facebook taking down picture queer art and taking down pictures of women breastfeeding? Well, if we are going to live in a world where we're okay seeding that kind of governance to the Facebooks of the world... Um, Particularly part- as they occupy more and more of our entire life. Exactly. I mean, they- if we're continue, if people are continually good, uh, participating in Facebook, then they're going to have to live in a world where Facebook has that power. I think that we need to break up Facebook. I think Facebook needs to. I think we need regulation that prevents the development of another type of another company like Facebook. But as long as uh, over a billion users still use the thing, then they're going to have power to do this. So what we have to do is we have to advise Facebook to make their content moderation better and just rely on them to do it better. There is no law, despite what the Republicans in charge of the last Congress wanted to say that they wanted to pass. They kept having hearings about anti-conservative bias on Facebook. There's no law that they can pass that's going to solve this problem. Facebook just has all this power. And 
we are complicit in giving Facebook that power by participating on this predatory social network. Okay, and quickly on this point, <clears throat> just to wrap up, are there things that we can do? Is there a gold standard for you know an, an actor in this space, particularly on social media apps, who's doing the right thing, right? Like either by their own, I guess it would be on their own volition mm -hmm. because we don't have good policy here. Um, and then is there some good policy that can be put in place to incentivize or punish for not implementing some of these Yeah, things. I don't think anyone is perfect in, the, in, in any space. Um, but when you compare a company like Scruff to Grindr, Scruff uses both design and it uses its, in, uses its mission to make the platform safer. It has a far better record of not tolerating hate, harassment, and, and non-essential pornography on its platform. And there are many reasons why. It has its executives have just made it part of their mission. They have a 24-hour, sometimes less, response time to all complaints. Hmm. Um, and they do this by integrating the legal and their engineering teams. Uh, so there is so you have legal professionals who are helping the engineers design, say, an in-app reporting procedure that's very easy, so people, so so users can feel can both. Uh, actually report bad or racist or hateful or harmful profiles and feel that the company is on its side. So there are lots, so that's what I mean by design, the way you design the platform, the, the user interface. Uh, and what would policy look like? Well, we do need to change Section 230. Again, I think we need a good faith threshold for getting immunity. Um, we, need, uh, we need criminal revenge porn laws. We also need civil opportunities. So we need a private right of action that allow, com that allow it victims to sue the platforms that willfully let this uh, let this happen and of course there are far there are other things besides revenge porn you know queer young queer people are victims of bullying in schools at far higher rates than anyone any other marginalized population and we have to do more than just pass an anti-bullying law we need laws that treat queer people equally and though equally and we find that there is a strong correlation between a general equality agenda in a state and lower rates of bullying of queer of, of uh, gay and bisexual people in right and so that gets you into the next kind of area where we were going to talk about which is um, it seems like every state now has some kind of cyber harassment or anti-bullying law. These laws are relatively recent, so we don't know that much about how effective they have been, but we do know some things, and it's largely led you to conclude, and others, that <laughs> they're insufficient. They're, they're, right. So as is often the case, you, you can't always pass one law and then throw up your hands and say, we're done, and the problem is solved. Uh, so Right. We can make longitudinal, meaning across time, conclusions about how bad bullying was before someone passed their anti-bullying statute and how good it is after. Because, as you say, Montana just passed its anti-bullying statute a couple of years ago. So we don't have enough. We don't have enough evidence. But we can identify trends along the line. So instead of longitudinally, we can identify trends at a given time. And there is a strong correlation between lower rates of queer of, of a queer victimization of her on, of harassment both face to face and online at the school level lower rates of harassment 
and higher and better equality laws in a state. And what I mean by equality laws are not just laws in favor of same-sex marriage, but also um, hate crimes laws, also laws that protect against employment discrimination, you know, that create all of these laws that create a culture of equality and that create a culture of really empowerment that remind queer people, especially those young people that are just figuring out who they are, that they are equal citizens and that they are protected and that they are welcome in this state. So when a state evidences respect for queer people, rates of bullying are lower. When a state, on the other hand, has no equality agenda and uses queer people as a pun political punching bag, rates of bullying and cyberbullying are higher. So that means that the way to reduce bullying and cyberbullying of young queer people is not just to pass a bullying law, it's to take queer equality seriously. And that's going to result in better outcomes, better t uh, educational, professional, and health outcomes for, for, um, for young as well as older queer people. That's a really good place to end that part of the conversation on, though, I think. And can I just get you to talk about, because it's the first of its kind and, um, and you know, you've put it together yourself, can you talk a little bit about your clinic? And we have law student listeners. What's that like? What are some of the kind of cases that you're getting? Um, you know, what is it like to be a law student working on those cases? Mm. Um, tell us a little bit about the clinic. Great, yeah, so, sure. So um, the the clinic, which is part of the Institute for Cyber Safety here, it's just called our Cyber Harassment Clinic. It's the first of its kind in that no other law school has a pro bono clinic focused on representing, um, representing victims of online harassment, broadly defined. It's run day to day by Andrew Santa Ana, who is a queer lawyer. He's uh, the head of director of litigation at an organization called Day One, which represents mostly queer victims of intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of cases that have come across the clinic's desk, they range. They're anything from uh, trans youth who are victims of harassment to um, to college students and graduate students, to people of all, various people of different ages as well as racial backgrounds. And it ranges from revenge porn to, um, to harassment on dating apps and things like that. The students in the clinic have had a wide range of experiences because this isn't all litigation. Sometimes it's just a matter of working with the platform to get the image down. And that's really what the person wants when the image is up there and it can harm them. Other times it's a matter of getting a copyright in the image, if you, if someone else took it, if you take the image yourself, you immediately, if it's a selfie, you all automatically have the copyright in it and have the authority of the, of the rights to force a platform to take it down if it's published without your consent. If someone else took an image and you don't have the copyright in it, so some some of our students have had to negotiate copyright assignments so they can get the power to take it down. Uh, when it in when these cases involve intimate partner violence, they've had to negotiate orders of protection in federal court. They've also had to negotiate and deal with hostile uh, parties. Uh, so it's a real it's a real diversity of experiences that range from copyright to privacy to nasty stuff in federal uh, nasty stuff in. Family 
family court, as well as just transactional stuff of how to get images down. Uh, there are few, uh, you know, clinics are a wonderful thing for law students, and uh, wherever your law students are, I recommend they take at least one. But they really should, but one of the great things about this is that you don't get this kind of experience anywhere else. You're not just drafting briefs. You're dealing with real people who are sometimes in danger, who if you don't help them, their lives are going to take a real negative turn. And they will be forever, these victims will be forever grateful, uh, will be forever grateful to you. And that will, uh, many students have gone through this program and have said to me, you know, I loved your privacy class and I love this and I love school, but I will never forget seeing how relieved uh, client X was when we finally took, we finally eliminated the the graphic images from the top ten results of her of a Google search of her name. That's incredible, and I just have to follow up on the selfie bit. So if I take a selfie, I can get it down easier than if somebody else takes my picture, yeah. and then I have to track down the cell phone or who took it, right? So in order in to enforce so my copyright, you, yeah. If you want to use copyright law, which is it's an imperfect, but sometimes the best way to get an image down. Because if you own the copyright, you control the reproduction and dissemination of it. If you so selfies, the rule is the person who takes the photo owns the copyright. Yeah. That's the default rule. Uh, so if it's a selfie, you are allowed to <laughs> to get that image down if the platform listens to you to get that image down. But let's say you're in a relationship, or yeah. not even in a relationship, you hook up with someone, and in that moment the other person takes a, a photo of you because it's erotic and you're in that moment and that's great because you're sex positive and then that person has that photo on their phone it is that person's copyright wow. and that person can distribute it and then if you want to get that image down the platform will say but you don't own the copyright to it or prove to me that you own the copyright to it and then I'll take it down because that's me having it online is copyright infringement because as I said the only exception to section 230 immunity is copyright infringement so that's why if you won't get owning the copyright is so important and of course, we all know the reason why the only exception to Section 230 immunity is copyright infringement is because lobbyists. You had Disney and other mm -hmm. companies that lobbied Congress to create an exception for copyright infringement, for not for immunity from uh, third-party actions on your platform. Well, if I've learned nothing else, I've learned take selfies <laughs> and uh, use scruff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and be as be as sex positive and uh, out out there and at at the as forefront and as forward as you want with your sexuality. Do not let bad actors turn us into a nervous or scared or a staid population. What we have to do is we have to make good choices and you have to share information with people that you trust uh, and share pictures with people you trust, sure, but that's always the case. We always have to be responsible. But it is wrong to feel like you were to blame because it's the always the other person. It's always the person who did the bad act, who shared your photos without your consent, who harassed you, who made you feel like you were a second-class citizen. It's always that person's fault. It's never your fault. And to make sure that these apps are accountable to their users, right? Exactly right. Like, if you are going to serve the queer community, you need to be thinking with their best interests, right? Right, and I think users have a responsibility. This is where I think people on the ground like us have, uh, have power here, 
If we feel that Grindr is not taking its responsibility to the queer population seriously, it's time to leave Grindr. And I don't think our world, I don't think our, our community is going to be worse off if people stop using Grindr. There are other options if you need that. <laughs> And also, I think there are a lot of ways in which Grindr is contributing to the overall erosion of public, of public health in our community. But there are tons of other options that will treat us with more respect. Wow. And if folks do experience um, harassment in this context, uh, can they seek out help through the clinic? Absolutely. Okay. If you experience any kind of online harassment, broadly defined, whether it's some type of cyber stalking, whether it's revenge porn or something else, or something you even you don't know if it's harassment, but you feel it is, you can always reach out to the New York Law School Cyber Harassment Clinic. It comes up easily on a Google search. Uh, you can also email cyberharassment at nyls.edu. We also have, uh, if you call our clinic number, you can also get connected. I'll put all that to, information in there. Yeah, we can also get connected to the clinic. So we are... Uh, and also, we are eager if there are lawyers out there who are, who are listening, and if they are interested in helping our students and helping the clinic represent uh, survivors of online harassment, we're always looking for partners, uh, whether it's in court, whether it's motion practice, or just as advice. And they should reach out to... And they can reach out to me. They can reach out to me. They can okay. reach out to the clinic. But um, my email address is available on the New York Law School website. Okay. So you can easily reach out to me and we'd look forward to working with you. That's really great. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for talking with us oh, today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> and who knew we were going to talk about 1776 right. <laughs> in this context? Oh, they were so scandalous. Weren't they? <laughs> All right, John and Abigail. <laughs>